Thank you, Tom. My name is Barney, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> I could resist that line. I, I, a guy threw it at me tonight. I haven't heard it for a long time, but it says an awful lot about me. And it's, it really is nice to be here tonight and to be here this weekend. And I want to thank uh, Al and uh, his wonderful wife uh, and uh, members of the committee for being so nice and inviting me to come over here and, uh, and, and hang out with the rest of the lepers. Uh, because, uh, because hanging out with you, frankly, is what seems to keep me sober. We're all crazy as rats, you know, and, and uh, uh, there at least is a, is a strong implication to the second step that we're crazy as rats. And uh, um, so we somehow when we hang together, we're not quite so crazy. We're not quite so, so um, self-obsessed. We're not quite so nutty. Uh, although some of us are. I mean, have you ever been on an AA committee? <laughs> That's exciting. But it's nice to be here, and I appreciate the fact that uh, Jack M. from uh, Ronsiford drove me over here yesterday, and, and my wife drove over today. I'm married to a woman from West Virginia. She grew up in uh, South Charleston, went to South Charleston High School, and and I'm, I'm from New York and Chicago. I, I was born in New York and raised in Chicago and um, have lived in big cities all my life, so it is a real change for me to be living now in retirement in Alderson, West Virginia, but I really do love it. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty place, and, and uh, we have AA meetings in Alderson. We have one AA meeting in Alderson on Sunday night at 7 o'clock if you're ever in town. If you come, there'll be seven of us, you know. <laughs> but I, uh, I grew up in, uh, in Chicago, as I say, in, in an Irish Catholic neighborhood where nobody had anything. We were, we were poor, but we didn't know it. I mean, everybody in the neighborhood was pretty much the same boat. Nobody lived in a house. We all lived in apartment buildings. And, and um, my dad worked very hard, but he never made much money. Our rent was... Uh, $40 a month, I'll give you a rough idea, even in the 40s that was low rent, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a good life. Uh, my father died when I was uh, 14, and um, I, I, suspect that, uh, I suspect that if I'd have had a little parental guidance and he hadn't died so young, maybe I would have done this or done that or I'd have done better in certain things because I am a screw-up. I mean, that's my, that's my nationality or I'm a screw-up. I just, I, I do things wrong even when right is better, uh, when right is smarter. You know, I just have a way of uh, uh, turning, uh, well, it was, uh, somebody says, snatching defeat from the jaws of certain victory. <laughs> but... Uh, I grew up uh, in a Catholic, Roman Catholic parish. I had the Dominican nuns in grammar school, and I had the uh, Carmelite priests at Mount Carmel High School in Chicago. And I had then, uh, because my mother used the last of my dad's insurance money to send me to the University of Notre Dame, and I had the Holy Cross Fathers there. 
And while at Notre Dame, I studied a lot of religion, a lot of theology. Uh, Sixteen credit hours I had in theology. I mean, you get into a seminary with that. And uh, so by the time I was 20 or 21 years old, intellectually, I knew a lot about God. I could argue in the average bar for two or three hours uh, <laughs> using the proofs of St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and so on that God exists and I can prove it to you scientifically and convince you in about three hours. And, uh, but the only problem with that is that I could argue the other side of that issue equally as well <laughs> and I can convince you that there is no such thing as a God. Now my life was lived in such a way that I didn't care if there was a God. My interest became, when I was 17, 18, 19 years old, even before I went to Notre Dame, but especially after I went to Notre Dame, and I, was, I felt surrounded by a lot of rich guys. Uh, there weren't any women there then, just guys. And uh, I resented their wealth, and I resented the furniture they had in their rooms, and I resented the clothes they wore and I, I just all I knew was I desperately wanted to get some stuff of my own because somewhere I, I figured out and I don't know where this came from I finally assumed somewhere that um, happiness and success for me was going to be the accumulation of stuff if you get a lot of stuff you know you're doing okay and they know you're doing okay. And you're just looking good if you got the right car and the right house and the right woman and the right blah, 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 blah. I had a bar that was magnificent, just as an example of my stuff. I had a glass and crystal bar that was fabulous. Half a gallon of everything behind that bar. And I was so arrogant and egotistical about it all that, that uh, I wanted to be sure if you came up to my house and you ordered a drink, I could make it for you. And it didn't matter what it was. And so I had all the books, and I had all the, you know. And, uh, and that was one of my proud possessions. That bar sat right in the middle of the living room. Now that I think about it, it really looked horrible. Uh, I don't know why my wife allowed it to remain there. Because it was really kind of ugly in that setting. But that's uh, the way I was. I'm trying to get rich and famous. I just know if I can get rich and famous, I'm going to feel a whole lot better about life and about you and about me. And I won't be so damn frightened all the time because I spent a lot of my time just scared. Scared of authority figures, scared of women, scared of life. I didn't know what the hell to... How, how are you supposed to be a man? What does it take to be a man? What, what are you going to do? Uh, how does a man look? How does a man act? Well, I had... Motion picture people, I could look at those, John Wayne, and who, by the way, <laughs> smoked and drank himself to death, but he was one of my heroes, of course. Uh, Errol Flynn, another guy, got drunk, fell off a boat in Jamaica. I mean, it's a whole series of these guys. But I don't know that, and I don't know, I just know that they look good on that screen, man. They got women after them, and they just, they always know what to say. And I never knew what to say, especially to a woman. I just, I, I stumble around and I fall around and I'm clumsy and I just, I, I'm not a good athlete and that irritates me and, uh, and I feel inadequate much of the time just as a person because I know down deep inside that I'm a rotten no good SOB and I've known it ever since I was seven years old. 
there's something about me that's not very good. I'm not one of the good people. I used to go in church. Hell, I was an altar boy. I knew all my Latin. I was a good altar boy. But it was all meaningless to me. I just did it to, to impress about Senior McGuire. And, uh, and I, I remember being in church and sitting there looking at the statues and the stained glass windows and the Stations of the Cross. And it was a beautiful Catholic church on the south side of Chicago. And I can remember sitting there thinking, you know what, these people are all good people. Apparently they believe this stuff. They're getting something out of this. I'm not. I don't understand even why I'm here. I don't, I don't understand. Intellectually, I understood it. What I never had, and for many, many years, what I never had was what our book describes as a conscious contact with God. When I saw that phrase in the big book, I knew I was screwed. Because uh, I couldn't have what you have, because I never had a conscious contact with God. I mean, what does that mean? You're going to pick up the phone and talk to him? Or what, what does that mean? And it was a long time in AA before I finally came to grips with that issue. Uh, anyway, I, uh, at Notre Dame, began doing some radio broadcasting at the student radio station. And then I, after college, I went to work for a little radio station in Monroe, Michigan, a little 500-watt daytimer. And I was doing news, and I was doing interview shows, and I was doing tough radio call-in shows. When you work for a station that size, you do everything. And uh, then I got a job in Toledo as a news director at the age of uh, 21. And then I got a job as a news director in Detroit, and then I... Uh, went into television, and by the time I was 26 years old, I was the anchorman for a television station owned by ABC in Detroit. By the time I was 26, uh, I had gotten married, and we began having a bunch of kids. We had six kids. And, uh, you know, this poor girl had no idea what the hell she was in for. Because when I married her, drinking was not a big issue in my life. Oh, I'd had a little bit here and a little bit there. My mother was an alcoholic, I'm reasonably sure. My father was not. But uh, I hadn't had very much to drink when, when I married her. But somewhere along the line in my 20s, what I discovered was, no matter how bad I feel, no matter how sad I am, no matter how frightened I am, no matter how inadequate I feel, no matter how desperate it gets at times, when I feel really crazy, when I drink, I feel better. Very simple discovery. Bill Wilson, when he wrote the big book, put a line in there. He must have been sitting there doodling in that office one day. He, he thought, maybe I better write down what the hell we are. Maybe I better put some kind of a definition. Now, in the book, there, as you know, there are several different definitions of, of alcoholism. The one I like is the one where he said... We are essentially men and women who like the effect produced by alcohol. That's such an obvious line that when I read it, I went right by it. Any alcoholic worth his salt knows that. I mean, yeah, you read it and go, yeah, yeah, what do you even bother to put that in there for? But the reality is that I really like the effect produced by alcohol. I love what alcohol does for me. It, it, it can do the same thing to anybody, but it does something special for me. 
Sure, I get drunk, but baby on the way, it's great. And uh, if, if a normie got drunk on New Year's Eve or something, he'd be sick and throw up and wouldn't feel good and probably wouldn't drink again until the next New Year's Eve. Because he didn't get that. He, it didn't do something special for him. What it did for me was to transpose this, this frightened little goof into something really special. Because when I drink, I feel handsome. When I drink, I feel romantic. When I, when I drink, I feel smart. When I drink, I feel smarter than everybody. When I drink, I feel tough. When I drink, I am something. When I drink, I am a man. And uh, unfortunately, there's this little peculiarity about my drinking that was a little, you know, I thought it was odd. But I never understood it, and, and, and it's this. Once I begin to drink, I don't seem to be able to stop. And it's the damnedest thing. And if you tell that to a social drinker, they look at you funny, because they don't have that experience. They simply do not have the experience. And so they don't, they don't understand what you're talking about. Well, I, you know, when I drink, I feel really good. And they'll say, yeah. Because these are the kind of people who, if they're at a party and you offer them a drink and they, 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 they work on that drink for a while and you go around and pour drinks for everybody else and you get two or three for yourself on the way around and, and finally get back to the social drinker and you say, come on, have another one, have another one. They will look at you and say really dumb things like, no thank you, I'm beginning to feel it. <laughs> they don't get it. Only about 7% of us, it turns out, 7 to 10% of us who drink, get this really special response to alcohol. And the other 90% of the people who drink don't even know what the hell we're talking about. Because they don't have that special response. It doesn't do it for them. It's, uh, it's, that's why they go home, for God's sake. <laughs> There's people like me that are still in the bars at 2 o'clock, looking for somewhere else to go. It's people like me that look for the all-night saloons, as I did in Detroit, as I did in L.A. Um, it's people like me that get, get in all kinds of trouble with cops and, and bosses and wives. It's people like me. Social drinkers don't have these problems, and they don't understand when we do. Oh, I know what they, what they do with us. They, 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 get us they get us to a hospital. Get us to some rehab or nice hospital or something and fix us. They're always fixing us, aren't they? And uh, sometimes they put us in there for 30 days or 90 days or hell, I, you know, it's, they buy us one of those $9,000 big books. <laughs> and they get us all, they show us movies and have therapy sessions and man they got professional therapists that come in there and uh, and they talk to you about your mother and then you talk to them about their mother and it, that's where it goes <laughs> and then the, and then the alcoholic comes out of there apparently fixed 
And he's feeling fine. He's looking good. He gets his job back. And they get the family back. The family's returned, you know. And everything's just going along dandy. And then one day, maybe a week later, maybe a month later, maybe a year later, he's taken drunk again. And the, and the family and the, and, and the other social drinkers out there are going, why did he do that? What the hell's the matter with him? We got him all fixed. What's wrong with that man or that woman? And of course the reality is that they are never going to know. They're never going to know. We know. You and I both know that, uh, that what we're dealing with here is, is, among other things, is a terrible sobriety problem. I have a horrible sobriety problem. It, it, sobriety makes life very miserable for me. Long-term sobriety makes it even worse. Endless days and nights without a drink. Endless conversations with people. <laughs> endless attempts to be successful. Endless battles with my wife. Endless, you know, just goes on and on. Life, and it's, life is very gray and it's on a very small screen when I'm sober. When I drink, it's cinemascope stereophonic sound. It is a totally different place and I love it. And I can't understand why other people don't want to join and go to Tijuana with me. I mean, it's just... <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> I was very successful in my career. I made a lot of money. But I always have had this, this thing of I spend about 15% more than I make. <laughs> so it doesn't matter how much I make. I will always do that. I do it in sobriety, too. You know, it's like trying to... Carol and I are both that way. We're just, we, we spend just a tad more than we should. And, uh, and then we wonder why the hell we get in all kinds of trouble. But uh, I, uh, I thought we were doing fine. I had a couple of nice cars. By that time, I bought a home. A home for a poor little kid from the south side of Chicago to own his own home. Jesus, what a deal that was. And, uh, and we had a, a five-bedroom home in Michigan. And then I got a five-bedroom home in Los Angeles when I went out there to go to work. And I had a swimming pool and lost a swimming pool. And I'm looking over the lights of the San Fernando Valley. Oh my God, fabulous. And I was a very unhappy guy. Nice wife, nice kids. Lonely. Jesus, was I lonely. I blamed her, I blamed life, I blamed people. But I'm a lonely guy. And I don't know what the hell's the matter, but I do know this. Alcohol does the same thing for me in L.A. that it did in Detroit. Makes me feel a whole lot better. So I drink a huge amount of it. And I don't seem to be able to stop. And I get drunk all the time. And I, you know, when I'm having a good night, I fall into the bed about 6 in the morning. And I'm drunk and I pass out and I get up at noon and go back to work and try to look good. And sometimes I travel when I drink. <laughs> One time I woke up in, in an airport in uh, Miami, and the last thing I could remember was sitting in a bar in Detroit on a Friday night. I don't know why the hell I went to Miami. I think I was on my way to Jamaica, but I'm not sure. <laughs> And you know, when you anchor the news and you miss a couple of days, they notice. 
So my reputation with the company was not terrific. We had good ratings. That's why they didn't fire me. They knew I was a drunk. They knew they couldn't trust me. They knew I was crazy. I got in fist fights. I got into all kinds of trouble. Cops always stopping me. Always stopping me. Uh, you know, they, we were on a first name basis. A lot of these cops and me. And but I was anchoring the news, so they'd take me home. I was so drunk I couldn't walk. And uh, one night I was going up to La Cunada to see a friend of mine, and, and it's, it's a windy. A narrow road going up to La Cunada outside Los Angeles and I had I banged against the curb on both sides several times and had blown out all four tires <laughs> and the cop had to explain to me that that's what I'd done because I didn't know and he, he took me home he had the car towed and took me home and uh, my wife used to say you know when those cops would bring me home she'd say why don't you put him in jail just put him in jail and I, you know, many of us have done that. Jails don't seem to do it either. We, jails will sober us up. Prison will sober us up. Nuthouses sober us up. Uh, rehab sober us up. Sometimes we get sober just sitting in the front seat of the car with our head under the cushion, you know. <laughs> Some people sober up in the, in the doorway of a skid row mission. Some people sober up sitting on a beach. Well, I'll be sober up. That's the damn problem. The issue for me, and maybe for you if you're an alcoholic of my type, is not that we can't get sober. Of course, we do it all the time. The human body cannot sustain a total toxic level of drunkenness for more than 14 straight days and nights. Sooner or later, you've got to pass out, and when you come to, you're somewhat sober. The human body is it's trying to be nice to us, but we don't know that while we're throwing up. <laughs> and uh, so we, uh, we sober up over and over and over and over and over again, maybe for a day, maybe for a week, maybe whatever. In my case, it was a matter of I drank about two or three nights a week because I couldn't, I couldn't afford not, not to be at work. And I couldn't stay sober. Sobriety is a painful, awful, agonizing experience for me. So why the hell would I do that? No fun. And I had long since stopped having fun drinking. Uh, by the time I was in my early 30s, my, t my tendency was to go after the 11 o'clock news. I had a rule that I would never drink before a show. But at 11.30, boy, when that news was over, I was to the closest bar. And, uh, and I'd drink hard until 2 o'clock and, and then find some place to drink until 5 or 6. And uh, that's if I wasn't being bizarre. <laughs> that was a normal night for me. And, uh, you know, it's hard to work hungover, as you well know. It's, it's tough to function especially when you get in there and they hit you with those hot lights and you just feel like you're going to melt and you have no idea where you're going you have a script in front of you and you're going, oh my God, what am I going to do here? And you just, you, you put it on automatic pilot, you do it, you have absolutely no idea what you read. No idea. And uh, I had lots of days like that. Lots of days. And uh, it was a big surprise to me that our ratings kept going up. I didn't know why.
But the other guy and I that were working together there were both drunks, and we drank together, and and uh, and he just uh, was fired from a million dollar a year job because of his drinking, a million a year, and he couldn't stay sober. Amazing. Um, when I was 35, my wife ran out of humor pretty much, and. Uh, she told me she was going to divorce me, and, and, uh, and I told her that I was going to threaten her. I said, if you divorce me, I'm going to get the best attorney in Beverly Hills, and I'm going to demand custody of the six children. <laughs> she said, you can have them, but she left. <laughs> Gotta be careful what you say, I'm telling you. So I lost my home uh, because I couldn't, couldn't make the payments on it. I was way behind with the bank, and she had to get some of the money out of it anyway, as if there were any. And uh, But the truth is I sold it for less than I paid for it, which in California is a crime. I mean, it's an absolute crime the way real estate jumps there, and I, buy a, I sell a house for less than I paid for it. And uh, she had actually wrecked our last car. She wasn't a drinker. She just wrecked the car. And so I had to go out, I leased a car. <clears throat> Why this guy ever leased me a car, I don't know. I had no credit rating at all. And uh, But I got this car leased, and I had the six kids, and I got an apartment in Santa Monica. And I did what any right-thinking alcoholic is going to do under the circumstances. When the jackals are leaping at your throat, and you're up against the wall, and you know they're going to tear your jugular out, you drink. Makes sense to me, because then you feel a little bit better for a little while, and you know that they can't touch you. It's like I become invisible when I drink. If they can't touch me anymore, they can't hurt me anymore. I'm just over here in my little bubble, and it's a pretty good little bubble. And um, a lot of right-thinking, well-meaning people suggested to me over the years that Maybe I had a drinking problem. And I knew full well that I did not have a drinking problem because drinking makes me feel better. I don't see it as a negative. Oh, sure, drinking in the long haul is going to uh, destroy your liver, do a lot of heart damage, probably kick hell out of your kidneys, cost you your jobs, your wife, your husband. Your parents sometimes, your brothers and sisters, all your friends, uh, cost you everything you got. But it sure makes you feel better. And they don't understand. Well, I decided that what I was going to do with her was that I would just bullshit her one more time. Because she always bought into me when I started doing that. I mean, I could convince anybody of anything for, you know, 15 minutes. And so I decided I'll go down to that A&A deal and I'll see what the hell's going on there and I'll stay off booze. I will not have a drink for six months. That will convince her I'm doing the right thing and she will come back and then I can go on about my business. I had met a man sometime prior to that who had given me his business card. 
he told me he thought he was he was uh, rather proud of it and he was an alcoholic and I said oh God, that's too bad <laughs> and I still had that card and I called this guy and I said look at here it's my, here's my deal now I want you to know I'm not an alcoholic that's not why I'm calling you what I'm looking for is I gotta not drink anything for six months I figure that's a good period of time for me no booze whatsoever for six months and I thought maybe you could tell me what is your six month deal <laughs> and he said well we we just do it a day at a time I said no day's no good I gotta have six months that was the first conversation with him of which there would be many because he became my sponsor but there would be many conversations with him wherein I would explain my situation and tell him what the problem was and he would respond in such a way that he didn't hear me. <laughs> I would say, I can't stand that meeting anymore. I'm not going in there and that woman that's running the meeting is a bitch and she's not nice to newcomers. And he'd say, why don't you offer to mop the floors? <laughs> Or I'd say, I owe $100,000. I have no way to pay it. I don't know what to do. My wife is gone. I don't think she's going to come back. I'm just half crazy. And i got these six kids to take care of. He'd say, you know, they need a coffee maker on Saturday night. <coughs> Be a good, good job for you. And I... What the hell's that got to do with sobriety? And he'd say everything, but I can't explain it to you. So the rule with him was that you'd never ask why. He said, I'm going to tell you to do a few things. Don't ever ask me why. Just do them. And if you choose not to do them and you want to do things your way, that's fine. Just talk to your next sponsor about it because I will not preside over a shipwreck. <laughs> and he said, you look like a shipwreck to me. <laughs> so I said, all right, what, what, what do I have to do? Just really go to a meeting, at least one meeting a day. I said, God Almighty, you know what I do for a living? I'm an anchorman on television. You want me to go to a meeting every day? He said, uh, we said, we're not going to argue and discuss. We're just going to do it. I said, how the hell can I go to a meeting every day? He said, you'll do it. He said, I want you to call me every morning at 10 o'clock. And I don't mean 5 after 10, and I don't mean 9.45. You call me at 10 o'clock. And he said, every once in a while, we're going to take little trips. And uh, the first trip was uh, from, from L.A. to Monterey. It's about a nine-hour jaunt. <laughs> and we went up there, and there were <clears throat> we, we visited an AA group in uh, Monterey. And Keith brought along about five of us. And, uh, and we went in and we, we put on a, uh, a panel for this group in Monterey, which made absolutely no sense to me at all. Why didn't they just talk to one another? What the hell did they need us for? <laughs> and Keith said, you can talk three minutes and that's it. Three minutes. And, uh, of course, my opening line is, I don't believe in God. I mean, you always love those. And, and, uh, and then I went on from there. 
And uh, on the way back, I said to him, you know, because we stayed overnight with these people in Monterey, and then we drove back the next day, and I said to Keith, I said, couldn't we have stayed sober in Oxnard or someplace a little closer? I mean, what? And he said, have you had a drink? I said, no. He said, shut up. <laughs> That's his measure. Uh, somebody, a couple people asked me in here tonight or said something about good luck and have a good talk and all that kind of stuff. And, I, and my measurement today is exactly the same. If I come here and I do this and I don't drink, it worked. I hear people talk all the time about good speaker, bad speaker, he's a jerk, she's no good, blah, 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 blah. I hear it all the time. Hell, I, I, judging speakers is one of my favorite things to do. I love to sit in the back and make fun of them and stuff. But uh, the reality is if, if, if we come and we participate, you know, Tom comes and participates. He stand here, he does his hello, and then you, go, you read, and uh, he stays sober. And, and it worked. People that serve food over there, if they're alcoholic, are staying sober with this kind of action. My sponsor pointed out to me, he said, we do not have a chapter called Into Thinking. <laughs> So stop thinking. I said, well, they got signs on the wall say, think, think, think. He said, a bad sign. Get rid of it. <laughs> he said, we have a chapter called Into Action. I'd rather see a sign that says, action, action, action. And uh, so he walked me through the, the 12 steps very slowly. I had a lot of difficulty with this whole concept of God. I was at best an agnostic, I suppose. And it was very hard for me to, to, uh, to stumble through that third step. And um, he was insisting that I, that I do a fourth step and, and read it to him, a fifth step, uh, before I was two years sober. Because I had put it off and put it off and put it off. And uh, finally, I, on an airplane one day, going back from Philadelphia to Los Angeles, I went to get a magazine in that rack that they have, and I opened the folder up, and it was pieces of paper. It was a letterhead with a pen. And I, you know, I thought, well, okay, it must be the airplane god talking to me. So, you know, there's a lot of people in AA, you know, they, they found a place in the parking place, you know, they, the parking lot god. Um, I, uh, I wrote that and I, uh, I went back to California and I, I went over and I, I read it to him. And we dug a hole in the yard and, uh, and, and he said, set it on fire. And I did. And he said, now bury it. And I buried it. And he said, now that's the past. Remember, it's buried. It's gone. We're dealing from this day forward. Every once in a while we go visit the past. If you go talk someplace, if you work with a newcomer, then you visit the past. But for the most part, it's today, baby, and it's today and forward. Stop sitting around feeling guilty or crazy or, or ravaged because of crap that happened to you in the past. Because it's all over. You don't have to do those things anymore. So, I went to meetings, I went to meetings, I went to meetings, I didn't like meetings. I thought the meetings were boring. We would go into those meetings and they'd do the same stuff, read the same crap out of that book every night. 
chapter 5 and how it works. <laughs> then they read the traditions. I don't know what the hell that was, but they were reading them every day. And then once a month they read the long form of the traditions. Just like they can't remember it. <laughs> if I want to read that stuff, I got a book. I never opened it, but I had one. <laughs> My sponsor says, if you want to hide anything from an alcoholic, put it in the big book. Uh, but I, uh, I went to meetings, I went to meetings, and I mopped floors, and I made coffee, and I did all this stuff, and I was a greeter. I hated that more, more than anything, standing at the door greeting people coming in. And I knew it was time for me to go. I had to get the hell out of AA. And, uh, and then I, I was sitting in a meeting one night, and, and, and the redhead over there walked by. And uh, she was wearing a miniskirt, and they had these, she had great legs. And uh, I was immediately attracted to her, and I knew that she could help me. <laughs> so I start chasing her around the meetings. And she was three years sober at the time, and, and uh, she said, I don't date newcomers. I said, well, I'm new now, but I'll be old later. How about coffee? <laughs> One night she looked at me, and she said, how many children do you have? And I said, well, they're six, but they're very small. You'd hardly notice them. They're just little, <laughs> little kids. She and I are going to be married 25 years in January. And... Uh, <laughs> Most of our friends are very surprised that both of us are still alive because <laughs> we've had some exciting years with those kids. She had two kids and I had six kids, so we raised these eight children, and that's been a real picnic. <laughs> now we have 15 grandchildren, and we always tell the grandchildren that we're the ones that really love them. Do you know why grandparents and grandchildren get along so well? They have a common enemy. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I, uh, when I was uh, just about ready to leave AA, I was sitting in a meeting one night, and a guy named Chuck C. talked. And uh, I had heard him talk before, and he never made any sense to me. Uh, but that night he said something about, it, it was another one of those non-sequiturs that he would come up with. It was like, what the hell does that mean, kind of thing. And he said, after I had been sober for six months, I discovered that I hadn't had a drink in six months. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? And I'd go up to him after meetings and I'd say, Chuck, I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, that's all right, son, you come and see me. And 11 years later, I did. But anyway, uh, that hit me right at about six months. That's why it was important to me, because it was, I was just about six months in this deal, ready to go. I'd had enough. I'd had enough of meetings. I'd had enough of people. I'd had enough, you know... Nothing was getting good in my life. It was just crap. And, uh, and I couldn't understand why I didn't have more money and more success. And, you know, I got to get these bills paid. And Jesus, it was just awful. Uh, 
I, I heard that and it made sense to me long enough to stick around a little longer. And when I was seven months sober, I heard my sponsor's sponsor, a guy named Clancy, talked. And I identified with this guy. It's as simple as that. It was the same thing that happened to Bob in 1935 when Bill was talking to him. Same thing that happens to every drunk sooner or later. It's one drunk talking to another drunk and it lights up. It's like, <laughs> I went up to him after the meeting and I said, if you're, what you're saying is true, I may be alcoholic. <laughs> he said, you're a quick study, aren't you, kid? I got a big-time job with CBS when I was two years, two and a half years sober, and Carol and I pulled these eight kids uh, up by the roots and hauled them over to Philadelphia because I am convinced at two and a half years that now that I'm sober, I'm going to be allowed to be rich and famous. But I have never let go of that. I have never let go of the issue of, you know, I somehow through some act of my own will, Jeremy, some act of my own will, I'm going to make it all happen and it's going to be great. And I went over there, I gave it the best shot I had. And I lasted about uh, 14 months and they fired me. And uh, I went back to San Diego and I went to work for a, a station there for a while and I wasn't pleased with, with the way they did things and I lasted about a year there and then I quit. And I was unemployed. And uh, I ran out of money again. I always run out of money. And I, uh, <clears throat> I felt frightened. And I felt inadequate. I couldn't get a job. I was talking to people. I couldn't get a job. Nobody wanted me. I, I felt uh, out, of, out of it completely. And I sat on a beach in La Jolla one night. <clears throat> because my wife was sick of it. She, you know, she said, are you going to get a job or what? You know. And I really, I said, I don't know. I'm working on step 11. <laughs> but I sat on that beach that night and I cried and I cried and I cried because I felt so sorry for myself and I knew that I was a loser and I would always be a loser and I had no shot to be anything but a loser. Some kind of a bum. And I'd never be anything. And the one thing I never wanted to be in my life was nothing. And I was going to be nothing. And I hated that. And I cried and I cried. I finally looked up because this is where he's supposed to be. And I screamed at him. I said, you SOB, I give up. Got to be a little careful what you say. If I had known that night or for any number of months after that, that I was beginning a very painful process called surrender. I probably wouldn't have done it. I just knew that, well, if I'd have had one more good idea, you'd have a different speaker tonight. I know that. Because <laughs> I was getting ready to drink. I know I was. But I just decided I can't make anything happen. I can't be successful. I am... I guess my life's unmanageable. But the, that wasn't the phrase that came to mind that night. What came to mind was, I am a loser. 
And I'm, and I'm always going to be a loser and there's nothing I can do about it. Not so long after that, a guy came along and offered me a job. I went to work back in L.A. And uh, the kids, and Carol and the kids stayed in San Diego and I worked in L.A. and I did a lot of commuting for the next 18 years. Uh, but uh, the funny thing is that those people for a lot of years were very good to me and they gave me uh, more money than I ever asked them for. And uh, I decided how much money I make is none of my business. Do you hear me? I decided how much money I make is none of my business. They're going to pay me whatever the hell they think they're going to pay me anyway. You know, I mean, I'm not kidding them. I can sit there and negotiate until I'm green. They know what they want to pay me. Uh, whether my wife loves me or not is none of my business. That's up to her. I cannot make her love me. I cannot make her like me. I cannot force her into anything. God knows. Hell, she calls me the newcomer. So what I have to do is the same thing. You know, I, I used to go to work and I decided I'd just show up every day and try to look alert. I don't know what the hell else to do. I just don't want to be fired. So I'd go there every day and I'd try to look alert and do what they told me to do and they paid me. It's a funny relationship. I decided to do the same thing at home. I just show up and look alert. See how she's doing. My sponsor said once, do you ever, do you ever look at her? Just look at her and say, how are you? And then the hard part, listen for the answer. It's hard to do. Because I want to tell her about me. I want to always talk about me. I started out by saying I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. And that's the truth. And, uh, you know, my thing is, you know, what's going on with me and how am I and, you know, how are they treating me today? And I found out that, that loving somebody has an awful lot to do with paying attention to them. <laughs> it's a, just the damnedest thing. We, uh, Carol and I, are now living in Alderson. We, the children have all grown and gone. and We have all these grandchildren, and we see them sometimes. Um, we go out to California part of the time and uh, spend two or three months a year out there. But I just love West Virginia, and I love living in Alderson. Alderson, by the way, if you don't know, is just, it's very near here. It's 45 mi miles away. And um, it's a good life. We have a very different kind of world in AA in Alderson than I had in Los Angeles. My home group in LA is 1,200 people. My, my Alderson Sunday night group is, can be as few as six. Once there were only two of us there. So it's a different kind of world. It's a different place. And Jack uh, M. down there is very active. He's, he's a DCM for District 10, and he's real busy in AA and active. And, and um, it's nice to be able to hang out with guys that are as busy as he is um, in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's nice to be able to hang out with you. Because this, this has been a fun weekend, and you've had you know, really good speakers. You know, the husband and wife team last night and this morning... Uh, you got a good speaker tomorrow. You got that candlelight tonight, which I'm anxious to see. And uh, you have so much action going on here in this conference. But but if you're fairly new in AA, try to remember that these conferences are really wonderful, and they really do stimulate you, and they really bring you up, and they get you feeling really good. And then what happens is that on Monday morning you're back to the same dreadful world. 
the job and the thing and the kids and the whatever. The bills. So the key is not to get too high here because the crash Monday is too low. So just enjoy it. Have a good time. It's like a pit stop in the Indianapolis 500. We just come in here and we get some oil and gas and get some wheels so that we can go back out there on Monday morning and participate with all those normies and they won't even know if we don't tell them. <laughs> Let me tell you one thing and, and, and stop because I think it's significant in my life. When I was 16 years sober, I was driving on a freeway between San Diego and Los Angeles, and as I often do when I'm driving that freeway, it's about a two, two and a half hour drive. Uh, I usually take a, an AA tape and throw it in and listen to it. And it happens that this night there was a tape, Chuck C tape. And uh, I had gone down to Chuck's house and I had talked to him when I was 11 years sober, and, and then he died shortly after that. And, uh, but I never understood Chuck C. And I threw this tape in, and he's talking, and I'm talking. And then I suddenly discovered I was talking to a tape. I was talking to a guy who had been dead five years. And I'm going, yeah, Chuck, that's right, yeah, yeah, and I'm driving along. <laughs> what he was saying on that tape, after 16 years of sobriety, made some sense to me, finally. And I guess I'd heard him say it many times. I must have. But that day, it meant something to me. And what, what he was saying was very simple. See, I was always looking for what Chuck said to be up here somewhere. It's right here. He ain't up there. He's right at eye level with me. And what he was talking about was, he said, I believe that the first two words of the Our Father mean exactly what they say. What a concept. First two words of the Our Father means the other. My father. Father. And I'm his son. Dad, kid. I have all these kids. What's my relationship to my kids? Have my children all their lives been just wonderful and never made me mad? No. Have they irritated me and still to this day irritate me sometimes? Yes. There are many things that irritate me. But I have to tell you that I have never stopped loving them. I, I can't because they're my flesh. I can't stop loving them. Uh, I just do. I told my son Bob, who never calls me. <laughs> I told him on the phone a couple of weeks ago. I said, I said, you have to know something, that I love you unconditionally. Do you understand that? You don't have to do anything to get my love. That's just the way it is. I love you unconditionally. He said, well, I'm really glad to hear that. I said, now when you call me three years from now, we'll try to remember all this. <laughs> you little... Anyway. It's a, it's a good life that, that Carol and I have today because I'm able to talk to my father on a regular basis as if we were having a conversation. Uh, it's not, you know, the formal prayers or the Latin prayers or the prayers I learned as a kid. It's not even the God I thought of as a kid, the, the guy with the white beard up there. It's, it's not him.
He's a father figure, and he is my dad, and he wants only the best for me. And no matter what I have done, no matter how rotten I've been all my life, no matter how much of a people user I've been, he has not stopped loving me. I really believe that. If you don't believe it, it's okay. I'm just telling you my experience. I think he loves me no matter what. I think he's always loved me. He's always wanted the best for me. I had to cooperate, that's all. I had to go to AA and not drink for a day and try to do something about step one. Mop floors, make coffee. I had to participate in my own sobriety in some way. Nobody's going to hit you with a magic wand. I had to be willing to participate in all of that. I'm very lucky now. I, I, uh, if I don't drink between now and May, I'll be sober 27 years. And my wife is going to have 30 next April. And we, you know, we've had a good life. We've had a very good life. We've had physical problems. She had cancer and I had lung problems and heart problems. But we're both still walking around. We're both still sober. And uh, we're doing okay for a couple old fools, you know. Not bad. We have just the two of us and our dog, Bill. <laughs> his name is Bill W. <laughs> Carol's sponsor is Clancy, so she told Clancy that we had named our dog Bill W. And he said, you can't name a, a dog after the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, well, we would have named him after you, Clancy, but you're not dead yet. <laughs> Have a nice weekend, guys.